All right, and welcome back to Better Understanding the Bible. We are getting into the second chapter. Well, technically, this won't be the second chapter of the book that we're going to be detailing today, as I do have another chapter in between going over how to read the Bible. I've had a couple of videos on the YouTube channel already going into those things and the podcast. So those fundamentals are pretty much laid out to some degree. I will expand into other things like the Suzerain Vassal Treaty and stuff in the book. But as far as for the listening, we're just going to move on to a more topical discussion like humans uh, before Adam as we move away from the introduction about why I started looking into this. And to do that today is really awesome. We got Steve and Leith back from the podcast and we're also joined by Edward Howell who has been on the Power Preterism Network for as long as I've not only been watching it but as I skip through all the back videos he's been there too. So uh, someone who's not unaccustomed to being uh, part of a conversation concerning things and what makes me happy that he's here is he does so in a very authentic, you know, authentic and uh, true nature. And that's what we're here to do is take a look at some traditions that really go deep. You know, we have some ties to it and we know that Edward has that right spirit that he can participate. So Edward, if you want to say hi to everybody, uh, feel free. Uh, you're new to the show. Uh, give us 30, 45 seconds who you are so that the listeners will give a little bit of context of where you're coming from so that we can all get up to speed with one another. Amen. Okay, my name is Edward Howell. I'm from Oakdale, New York in Long Island. And uh, I grew up in an apostolic church in Manhattan, in uh, in Harlem. Uh, uh, and uh, I've been going to church ever since I was around six years old. Uh, coming out here to Long Island, I've been a member of the Blue Point Bible Church for like 10 years. Pastor Michael has been pastoring for 11. So he was new when I had come in. But anyway, I've, you know, been uh, actively participating in his uh, endeavors. So that's me. Thank you. Fantastic. And if you just, for the record, let us know currently where you're at for your position on origins and eschatology, because I assume, and I, I know you, Edward, so uh, as far as eschatology, I know that going to Mike's church, you're full preterist, correct? Amen. Yes. So I am full preterist, and, and my take on eschatology, I believe all things have been fulfilled in the first century. But as far as the beginning and in Genesis, basically, all I really know about Genesis is the death of Adam was covenantal. At least that's what I've come to understand, uh, relational relationship-wise, and it was restored in uh, in Revelation, I believe, something of that nature. Yeah, you're very familiar with uh, Tim Martin and Jeff Vaughn's book, Beyond Creation Science. So you've given uh, Genesis some thought before. This isn't, uh, in general, a, a new idea. This is something that you've actually spent some time into. That. That's correct, right? Yes, sir. Okay, awesome. And just so uh, listeners are happy to be, you know, part of this, maybe they haven't gone to the podcast on better understanding the, or wait, challenging the traditions of men podcast, rather, uh, over on Spotify and Apple podcast, they might not be familiar with you guys, Steve and Lee. So Steve, if you wouldn't mind popping up and giving us uh, a few seconds there, like Edward did about where you're coming from. Uh, sure. I'm in the Nashville, Tennessee area. Um, I'm not much of a religious type person. Uh, I did go to church with my grandma as a child, a Baptist church, but only once in a blue moon on a summer every couple of years. And so most of my adulthood, not much church at all. And just picked up the Bible, finished the Bible recently. So I've at least made it through it once and uh, picked up some knowledge and been learning from Dallas and just trying to see see what it's all about honestly so i'm kind of open-minded about anything fantastic and at least we did uh jump all over you a little bit uh last week oh wait steve so uh just like edward i gotta put you back on the spot here as far then as your perspective because you are very new to these kind of ideas and i've been brainwashing you right from you know the get-go here as much as i can uh where then do you sit for your view of the the eschatology, the study of the end, do you see that as fulfilled, not fulfilled? And then also where are you currently looking at origins as far as your perspective? Okay, what does that mean? Uh, the end is like... So when we get to Revelation and the the end and all that kind of stuff, how do you see that summing up? Like Edward pointed out that in 8070 is where he believes that entire thing came to a, a summation. 
do you see that similarly or do you still see future events in it where do you sit now that you've read it um you know i don't know <laughs> honestly uh, i'm gonna say that's a good answer no idea i mean it could be but i don't know if it affects me either way so it's like i mean if it ended tomorrow okay if it ended a thousand years ago okay i mean it doesn't really matter either way i'm not sure Okay, so then what about as far as your origins position? Where do you see Genesis? I know we've just gone through the podcast, so we've done a few months talking about it. Uh, where do you see that now? Because at one point, obviously, just like everyone, we all start from a, it's talking about physical creation. So where are you at now? Uh, yeah, I was I was part of the universe. And, you know, I just assumed the Bible just started, you know, creating planets and doing all that. But now I think it's more just talking about Adam you know, the covenant with Adam, his kingdom, and, you know, progress from there. But it, there was people before, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it looks like it's pretty obvious that using biblical, you know, scripture. So makes sense. I'd say, yeah, that's got to be it, that there were other people. And Adam is just the start of the kingdom. Awesome. Thank you very much. And now, Leith, just for everyone listening, uh, we've gone over a little bit last conversation uh, about you, but if you wouldn't mind, again, stating for everybody your uh, eschatological, eschatology position uh, and your origins position. Yeah, so as far as um, the beginnings and stuff like that, a lot of the stuff that we've learned here is, has really opened my eyes, and I'm definitely more in a position now where I lean more towards Genesis. Um, well, not more towards, but I, I don't see Genesis as being a, a natural uh, creation type situation anymore. I know that uh, we've discussed, you know, covenant type creation as well. And so it's cool to open up all these different options to talk about. And, um, but as we've been digging in more, it's like we're, we're starting to see some other stuff popping up. And, um, and so, yeah, I see a, it's, it's a creation of, um, of more of a, Covenant, if creation of kingdoms, creation of always a people or a, or a man, a type of man or a, or a type of people kind of idea. So that's kind of where I'm leaning that direction as far as uh, as far as um, things being fulfilled or not. I'm full more into the full preterist situation where everything is uh, everything has been accomplished that um, that at least has been recorded in the Bible. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but as far as the Bible's concerned, I see it as um, wrapped up. Perfect. Awesome. So and I'll just throw this out there again for those who might not be completely familiar as we start this uh, unit. I know it's being shared. So I come from full uh, position of eschatology as well. But I also believe that when we read Genesis, what we're talking about, when we look at the eschatology is the end of the people of Adam. Uh, Genesis is the beginning of the people of Adam. Never once is it referring to any type of physical creation, natural creation, uh, universe or anything like that, but rather it's a motif of the creation systems that we see all around and using that language as a duplication to say, uh, to take the language that the people see naturally in nature and use it how it also then would relate to man. So just as, no, I don't want to get into it. That's what this whole book's about. I start the whole thing off with some big rabbit trail. Instead, we'll get into it. That's the fun point. So let's challenge these traditions. Let's get into it and see why uh, Genesis, I find, is probably the most interesting book in the Bible at this point. Uh, Eschatology-wise, again, I believe everything is fulfilled and summed up in it. And just like in Genesis 1, as much as it's summed up and fulfilled and completed in Revelation, it started, began, and had its structure all organized in Genesis 1. So we're going to take a look at that. But in order to do that, just as we did last week in my first chapter, what we discussed was, why did I even start looking at this with the example of Jesus in Genesis? And once we uh, discussed and kind of looked at, look at all this language that these apostles, the prophets, Jesus is credited with saying, we have to take this a lot more seriously. And that brings up some questions when we look back at Genesis and you know Adam and all these concerns. So we really need to take a look at Adam and his origins to understand what are we reading? What context are we reading this in? How should we even be reading this in? So we're going to wipe the slate and we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to question 
how should we be reading the origins of Adam as opposed to just assuming right off the bat that he's the first human, just assuming that all humans come from him, just assuming that it's even a creation system to explain that. So before we just go assuming, uh, we're going to you know take a look at these and question them because look what happened when we started questioning things like, hey, Jesus said, everything was coming upon this generation look what happened when we started believing what he said so we're going to do that same kind of idea and take a look at this so all i'm going to do is read from my book hopefully you guys find it interesting and then we'll stop for some cool conversation points along the way so thanks for being here guys and i'm excited to get into it so as i look off to the side for everybody watching this because i got my book open on my computer there and i'm just going to read from it we'll stop and have some cool talking points so let's get to it so the world uh, Adam was born into humans before Adam. So today, the common view of Adam concerning his origins is that Adam was the first human created by God, and from Adam descended all other humans. There are many other views, some that accept the evolutionary process or position in a position that is a story of metaphor. Sometimes it's seen through symbols with enriched meanings, or even complete myth invented by kings to keep their populace under control. Whatever meaning the reader takes, however, fundamentally alters their view on the totality of scripture. If Adam was handmade by God literally out of dust, a formed clay man, as opposed to, say, seeing it through metaphorical imagery, the differences in the conclusions would vary greatly. Leaving things up to interpretation can lead to many disputes, confusion, unsettled issues that can all lead to exclusive and divisive camps. In most of these camps, have their ideas, traditions, and doctrines set up in order to set boundaries on these differences. So with very little progress in those debates, we will look at approaching this uh, issue with a different goal. We're not going to try and support any of those positions, but rather see what the text says. While staying consistent by following the base principle of scripture, interpreting scripture, the technique of word usage. We're going to examine the world that uh, the Bible presents of Adam in order to give ourselves a look at what the world was like at the time of Adam. And there's no better place to start than in Genesis chapter 5 with Adam's family tree and the line of inheritance. Now, the reason why this is important is it's no secret to the great importance of the family inheritance structure to the people of the ancient Near East. Inheritance was how the family maintained its future by preserving its family line and its land holdings. All one has to do today to get an idea of the importance of inheritance to the ancient Near East is a search on Google Scholar and you'll find pages of scholarly work expanding on it in great detail. The ancient Near East culture gave the firstborn special rights, including in hereditary contingencies. This worldview is present in the Hebrew law as well, not surprising as they are also ancient Near Eastern. Deuteronomy and Numbers both contain inheritance law. This includes a text about a double portion for the firstborn, a situation of inheritance in order to keep the given allotments amongst the tribes of Israel. Numbers 26, 27, 36, and also Deuteronomy 25 go on to talk about keeping the family line going, the family name going, thusly keeping their house alive. The Sumerian law code of Lipid Ishtar and the code of Hammurabi both share this ancient Near Eastern worldview of inheritance, giving us more evidence of the cultural significance and its normality. That brings special attention to what tribe a Hebrew child was born to. In order to keep the family line going, an heir was needed from generation to generation. This brings attention to the Messiah who was to be born of the tribe of Judah, as recorded in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Just let us consider what it would mean if the army invaded and carried Judah away into exile, destroying them and ending their line. The whole promise and message of the Bible would fail without that inheritor. This highlights the significance of a barren woman, Sarah, who was to bring forth the child of promise by Abraham. Her story was the barren woman who could not conceive due to age, but in the end having her womb opened by the promise of God. This was done to have a son to inherit Abraham's kingdom, the promises of God, and to ensure a future for the family line. This is a foreshadow of Jesus, a life being born from a barren desert by the promise of God. How? Through inheritance. Luke also claims Jesus had the right to inherit the kingdom of God as God's son by Jesus being a direct descendant of Adam. When we read Luke 3, 23 through 38, 
we read in verse 33, the son of Judah, as we just heard, was the prophecy given early in the Bible. And here we have Luke saying, in the genealogy, Jesus descends through the, the line of Judah to the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. It was by inheritance that the son would gain dominion over the nations of the earth. And we see the eternal fulfillment of this in Jesus, the son of God, according to Hebrews 5, 5 and Acts 13, 13, which makes reference to Psalm 2, 7, saying, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I begotten you ask of me and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance. Israel was also given the right of the firstborn, seen as heir and seed line to those promises of God, his royal line. Exodus 4.22, Israel, my son, my firstborn. Thusly, Jesus inherited the kingdom of God as God's son and brought with him those who converted to the new kingdom that Jesus received, birthed out of the womb of Israel, a legal inheritor. Colossians 1, 11 through 13 also stresses the importance we see on inheritance as it reads, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the endurance and patience with joy, uh, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And you have delivered us from the dominion, darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So the son and the inheritance and that joining gift was given to them by God. Romans 8, 16 through 17, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So what then does this have to do with Adam? And how does this better help us understand the world that Adam was brought into? It helps us understand what is taking place in Genesis chapter 5 and the genealogy of Adam. As it states, this is the book of the generations of Adam. The Gospel of Luke derives its genealogy of Jesus from this very list in order to substantiate Jesus and give Jesus hereditary legal right to Adam and the kingdom of Adam, which is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven and earth. Genesis chapter 5 tells us about the firstborn of God, Adam, who was created the son of God. It tells us the descendants of Adam and their firstborn, giving us the hereditary right. This list follows generation after generation of the royal family line of Adam. The generations list, as it is written, creates a pattern that helps us make things a bit clearer. It's a list of a father, then it declares him having a child, his firstborn. The text then confirms this by clearly identifying that other children, both male and female, are born after the firstborn is named. The ages are given for each event, including the birth and death ages. This really gives us an abundant amount of information about Adam and his beginning. So let's look at the text. And I'm just going to pull this up here on the computer because with it being isolated, we can actually see this pattern really well. Now, hopefully you guys see uh, my screen. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. It's working. That's working. Yeah. So when we go to Genesis 5 and we're going to read this at the top of the screen here, we see Genesis 5. When we break it apart so that it's structured as such, we see a pattern that appears. And it reads, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. But What's really interesting is this, this uh, format in which it's laid out. So that's what we want to pay attention to. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, when we go to uh, verse 3, it's interesting because we find the exact same pattern, the same construction. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his likeness after his image and named him Seth. And then he had other sons and daughters, and Adam lived 930 years, so, and then he, he died. Well, it's interesting because when we go on to verse 6, we see that when Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. And he had other sons and daughters, 
Thus, all the days of Sathur 912. So we get that pattern. First, the father creates the son in the father's image and likeness and names him. Second, the father has other sons and daughters. Third, the father's death age. This is very important for us to see because this pattern, and I'm just going to get out of here now. Because what this pattern does is it helps break down this information into sections for us. So God the Father, as we read this then, God the Father made the son of inheritance, Adam, in God's image and likeness. Likewise, Adam made Adam's son in his image and likeness, his son of inheritance, Seth. In Adam's image and likeness, this pattern continued showing that succession Adam succeeded the throne of God. Seth succeeded the throne of Adam. And we saw that pattern continue. The first section in the text of genealogy of firstborn children. This is very important for whoever it, uh, for the firstborn children who inherit the kingdom and then likewise have a child to succeed them. This becomes an Adamic king's list, which we have seen in other ancient Near Eastern texts, such as the Sumerians king's list. Luke is claiming Jesus is a bloodline member of this order and not from any other that came from Adam at any other point. Jesus was claiming to have firstborn succession rights. So uh, before we move on past that and we go into Genesis 5-4 to expand on this pattern, uh, we've gone through this before with Steve and Leith. Uh, we kind of, this isn't new information we're talking about. Uh, and I was just wondering, Ed, uh, are you familiar just in general with how important uh, the succession and, and hereditary title and all that was to the ancient Near East? Yes, I am. I'm familiar with that. Uh, uh, but I, I wasn't able to pinpoint it as you had because I was familiar with the genealogy, you know, from um, Genesis 4 and 5 and I believe 10 and part of 11, something like that. Uh, and then um, when you had mentioned Luke, uh, that that uh, I remember Pastor talking about that genealogy as well. Uh, I knew about the genealogy, but uh, I wasn't I didn't pinpoint it as far as the in-depth importance of the firstborn. I knew the firstborn had significance, you know, as far as you know the inheritance of two portions or however, you know, with the prodigal son and stuff like that. But uh, I I didn't pinpoint it as you had, which you said it beautifully, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Awesome. Good. So that that's great that you're familiar with it then. Uh, I know Leith and Steve, we've kind of all talked about this before. So unless anything new that has popped up that you'd want to share, uh, we can just keep moving on. Uh, if anything's uh, we good to move on. Yep. Good for me. Yes. All yes. right. Well, let's keep going on then. And that's awesome, Ed, that uh, Edward, you caught up on this stuff kind of already so that we can uh, keep plowing through. So let's do this. So we're going to move on to uh, in Genesis uh, 5-4. Uh, the second part of the pattern clearly emerges as identifying the son of inheritance, uh, then uh, many other children. Both male and female are born to the father. After the child of succession is identified, then many other unnamed male and children, female, uh, male and female children were born to Adam. So this removes any doubt to the identity of who the firstborn is being the son of succession. So I'm going to re-say that, that. That's why I'm reading this out online. It's a little wordy there. But in Genesis 5-4, the second part of the pattern emerges where we clearly see the son of succession is named. Then after that, other sons and daughters are born. So the, the pattern and the way this is written out clearly, clearly is identifying by name for us the child of succession. Then explaining, yeah, then they had other children. This is very important to us for the third part of the pattern follows with the recording of the final age of the father of that generation until ending with the coming of Noah. Here is a further section of Genesis 5 to see this pattern completely. So I'm just going to say this in uh, comparison so we can hear it. Genesis 5-9, where we're going to talk about Enosh, then uh, Kenan, and then Mahalah, however that one's pronounced. Good luck with that one. So Genesis 5, 9, when Enosh had lived 190 years, he fathered Kenan. 
When Kenan lived 70 years, he fathered Mahala. When Mahala had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. So each one of those starts literally exactly the same. Then it's followed up with, thus all the day, uh, sorry, uh, Enosh lived uh, after he fathered Kenan 850 years and he had other sons and daughters. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalal 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Mahala lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and he had other sons and daughters. And then the final pattern, thus were the days of Ninosh and he died 905. Thus were the days of Kenan, he died 910. And thus the days of Mahala were 895 when he died. So the pattern is absolutely clear for us. We have the father followed by the son of succession, followed by all the other children, and then the death of the father. Okay, I have a, I have a question. Okay, you have the, the father, the son of succession, and then you have the rest of the children. So the rest of the children is, you know, to form the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the tribe, right? So basically, Jesus being the firstborn, he came from the succession, children exactly and that's okay. what we're reading with luke is luke is claiming that and that's what gives genesis 5 validity and it gives jesus validity otherwise it's a false claim so absolutely so now as we continue it says we need uh i'm in the book uh, we need to pay very cl uh, close attention to this for the line of adam is very precise and it needs to be in order to determine the inheritance and the very future of the kingdom of god especially if luke attaches jesus to it as its final expression of the kingdom as we see in genesis 5 3 adam had seth at the age of 130 seth was the firstborn of adam the son of inheritance genesis 5 4 adam then after the seed line had been established, then Adam had other sons and daughters. Side note, I'm just uh, extremely uh, being stressing this because this point needs to be carried forward into this study. This is very important because this is how Jesus is validated for his inheritance. This very genealogy, Adam to Seth and then down to Jesus. Adam's many other children came after Seth and Adam's royal line was firmly established. So now that we have established a little context of Adam's beginnings, let's apply that to Genesis chapter four, where Adam's bloodline began in narrative form. We just finished comparing the genealogy form of Adam's origins. We're now going to compare it to the narrative form of the story of Adam's beginnings. We will compare this, the genealogical record of the Adamite king's list to the narrative record of Adam's descendants for a further understanding of what it was like at the beginning of Adam and the world he was in. Genesis 4 tells us about an incident with Adam in a situation of two children born before Seth. These two children have tragedy in their story, resulting in a need to replace the firstborn of Adam, leading up to the need of Seth. Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Adam and Eve have a firstborn, the son of inheritance, Cain. And as we are about to find out in verse 2, Cain followed after his father and was also a tiller of the ground. We're also introduced to another member of the family of Adam, a second child, Genesis 4.2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. However, as they grew, there came an issue in Cain, leading him to an act of violence. So in verse 4, 8, uh, we get Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Next, God judges Cain for his actions. So before I move on with that, do you think that summarizes the story leading up to the incident with Adam? Uh, well, I think everybody in general is pretty... Uh, we know the details leading up to the incident of the murder. Is that fair for everyone here? Yes. Amen. Okay, perfect. We'll keep moving. So going to Genesis 4.11. And now you are cursed from the ground. So we get into God's judgment. And now this is where it gets very interesting for the genealogy. Because we know that the genealogy is credited from God to Seth. Well, Seth isn't born yet. So there's a whole lot of interesting genealogy stuff going on here with no inclusion to Seth. So let's keep reading. Genesis 4.11, God going into judgment against Cain. 
And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. We see with Cain's judgment comes a curse and exile. Adam's firstborn has been exiled and no longer available for succession. Adam's secondborn Abel is no longer available to replace uh, firstborn Cain since Cain has been exiled. And Adam, now having no son to inherit his kingdom, finds the house to be in jeopardy. We are also seeing an interesting description of Cain's judgment as a fugitive, often translated vagabond or even wanderer. This term fugitive suggests to us that there was a knowledge of law. Fugitive is one who's running and hiding from the law or persecution. So we will need to keep that in mind as we move on to the next text, as Cain's response to the judgment of exile is expressed. Genesis 4, 3, 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, and I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's expression, I will be a fugitive, followed by whoever finds me will kill me, presents to us a lot of questions. Adam was not yet, Adam has not yet had the child sap, his firstborn. We know from Genesis 5 and the king's list that Adam did not have any other sons or daughters until after Seth. So that point becomes very important now, very extremely important, because Adam's children did not start till after Seth. So the only people in creation at this point, according to the biblical narrative, is Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Abel's dead. Cain is exiled. So, who uh, continued on here? Adam has not yet had the child Seth, his firstborn. We know from Genesis 5 and the king's list that Adam did not have any sons or daughters until after Seth. Who is Cain afraid of here? Who will kill Cain? These people are described as having a moral code of justice, as they see Cain for being a transgressor, a transgressor, a fugitive, a lawbreaker. We see that because Cain broke a moral standard, the others were seeking retribution. God's response to Cain provides us even more detail to these issues. In 4.15 Genesis, we read, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Now that Cain has expressed fear of retribution from the justice of others for his unlawful act, God reassures him. God says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him. This tells us that God takes very seriously the others who are going to be seeking vengeance for Abel's death, and God was going to protect Cain. What it is also telling us is these people know what the mark of God is. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who finds him shall kill him. Whoever these people are, they knew Cain and Abel, and they were a people of justice and moral standard, and they knew the mark of God. Whoever these others are, they seem to be an established society with laws and with the knowledge of God. They talk about the notoriety of Cain and Abel amongst these others, who upon hearing of this event sought justice. So we also need to point out Cain's immediacy of fear. Cain didn't say, one day down the line or eventually someone may find me. Cain was fearful, and God also knew Cain's fear was justified and marked Cain for protection. This immediacy tells us other offspring of Adam were not the ones Cain was fearing because Seth still hasn't been born, and Adam did not have other children until after Seth. Adam and Eve had two children, Cain and Abel. Abel died and Cain was banished. There were other people who were lawful and knowledgeable about God while Cain and Abel were alive. Again, Seth has not yet been born. Adam has no other children yet. Cain kills Abel and gets banished, leaving the house of Adam without a successor. With Cain being banished, the area in question that Cain would be exiled to had political boundaries. Cain left Eden and settled in the land east of Eden. That means if there was an east of Eden, then there was a west and a south and a north of Eden. 
These designations were to separate exiles from God's presence. Genesis 4.13, it says, you have driven me from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. So Cain takes up his belongings and flees to Nod, another land different from Eden, with its borders adjacent to Eden. What is also fascinating about this text to another uh, trek, rather, what, let me reread that. What is also fascinating about this trek to another land is we are introduced to yet another character that is alive before Adam has had any other offspring, Cain's wife. Genesis 4.16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city of his son, Enoch. Cain built a city. This is not a small undertaking. It also shows the concept of communal living amongst the populace. Cain knew how to develop all these things from the society he was leaving. It also shows population. A man and a woman with their son are not a city. Who were these other people Cain would have befriended and filled his city? Somehow Cain would come to a place where others joined others outside of Eden, a people who did not know him and did not seek vengeance, a people with no notoriety of Cain and Abel, or maybe didn't care about the transgression, possibly lawless people. After Adam and Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel and is banished. Cain fears for righteous retribution from God-fearing people. Cain leaves Eden where he begins his family. That leaves Adam without an heir. Abel is dead and Cain exiled. Therefore, Adam tries again. Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Finally, now Seth appears on the market. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him so Cain was disqualified Abel was disqualified and now we know in comparison to Genesis 5 why Seth was the first born after Cain let's see here uh, after Cain leaves Adam has the appointed child Seth is first born and successor Adam then after Seth had many other children both male and female according to Genesis 5 and then began the line of the covenant people of Adam Verse 426, to Seth was also born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the Bible does draw a picture for us about the world Adam was in, but it may be different from the ones we have been previously exposed to. As stated earlier, there are many views of what Adam's world was like. What we have, now that we've looked, is a world where peoples who lived apart from the line of Adam in another territory, and there was another people that Adam lived among. Adam's community clearly showed a society with an evolved sense of morality and justice. They had a sense of community structure with laws and expectations for transgression. They understand polit politics and religion as we see boundaries which were ruled by Eden politics. They understood the mark of God and put it on that was put on Cain, religion. Adam was not the first human. The entire narrative story of Genesis 4 could not happen if Adam was the first human with all humans starting from him. The Bible does not suggest Adam was the first human in Genesis 4 or 5. What it does tell us is quite to the contrary and doesn't even entertain the concept or make the point of discussion. So before we move on to another big interesting aspect of humans before Adam and was Adam the first human. That was a lot of content. Uh, I've done this video a couple times on the channel and we've gone through it on the podcast, but it's by far the one of the most important things that we need to deal with because mm -hmm. depending on how we read the Bible and how we see Adam, we're going to take that base understanding and read it through the rest of the Bible. So it's the foundational view. And if you believe that Adam was the very first human and all humans descended from him, then you're going to have a very different ending position than someone who is, as I'm reading this, saying it cannot be possible that Adam was the first human. So before we move on to any other points that we've kind of, you know, dumped a big bucket out here for you guys. Uh, I'd like to take a few minutes and just let you make any comments. Uh, second time we've gone through this, the first time I didn't really hammer as hard into the whole idea of uh, the hereditary aspect of it. I never hammered the whole genealogy aspect in order to accentuate how important it is that we know that 
Adam had Seth, then after Seth, all these children were born to him, but not before. And when that compares then to the narrative structure of Adam's origins of Genesis 4, we cannot interpret Genesis 4 to be saying that the people present in Genesis 4 were the children of Adam. So that's the introduction, you know, to that kind of big concept. We got into that pretty deep, pretty good. So uh, now I'd like to open the floor there, Steve. Uh, Get the pick on you. You see, I wasn't joking. You're always at the top right corner. I, know. I don't know why. <laughs> this works out that way. <laughs> well, you know, this thing going through a second time, it just makes, you know, the things that pop out in my head are, um, man, these guys take a long time before they have kids. Um, <laughs> oh, it's so odd to me, but okay. <laughs> And then I just keep wondering, what was this? What was this symbol? I would love to know what, how he marked him, or how those other people knew not to touch this guy. Like, is it eye color? Is it skin color? Is it a tattoo? What? What is it? That is, you know, what's the sign? I would love to know, but I think that's a can of worms. So, what's interesting is how uh, your statement just assumes that there's other people there. So I would suggest that from that statement, you're in a position where you have no doubt in your mind that the Bible is clearly, at least through Genesis 4 and 5, declaring, you know, no opinion upon the origin of the human peoples on this earth. Yeah. I mean, I it's it's actually a little hard to even think that people think like that. Like, I guess... I don't know. Yeah, I guess you just don't make the connection. So you just or somebody told them that this was how it was and they just never questioned it and they just read it like that. So that's how they saw it. You know, it's this whole perspective thing. And it's like, but now that you've opened it up and you've shown the connections, I, I, I mean, it's so obvious, like, yeah, it just makes sense. And why not? What's what's wrong with other people being around? I don't think it's a big deal to me. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate yeah. it. All right, we'll move over to uh, Mr. Ed Howell, our new guest on the panel. Uh, this is the first time you're getting to go through this data. Uh, Amen. Comments so far on that everything that we've talked about so far, fair game, criticisms, ideas, any comments, and even if you just want to give a thumbs up. So whatever you want to say, fair game. That was wonderful. Um, it gives us an understanding why Seth, is the uh is considered the uh uh, uh the uh inheritor uh, uh because we know that Cain being the firstborn being that he killed his brother he was exiled and he was separated so he could not be that that heir so Seth you know being born later on took on that position and uh being that before Seth was born or even thought of, of um, there had to have been other people. So what what was what had come to mind was, I wasn't here for 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 your previous teachings that you have on YouTube, but what had come to mind was in Genesis one one where it says God created the heavens and the earth. Um, being that uh, he created a system a gov a, a government a governing system a governing system that he had created that had gone on until that point of adam being taken out of the dust or the chaotic or the the uselessness you know uh people that were probably just uh, uh a prostate from god you know and put him in the garden uh, where he was, I guess, enlightened, you know, and had uh, God breathed into him and gave him, you know, uh, 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 made him a living being. So uh, that's had, what had come to mind in that regard. That's a great, awesome connection because that actually might let a, a little bit of uh, light on the idea of the nation surrounding Eden, right? That's that marking yes. of what made the people recognize and why the people outside of Eden would be, you know, willing to go and live with Adam. Because obviously the people inside following after the mark who wanted to kill him weren't going to set up shop at his place. So that idea that there, you know, Eden was 
most likely surrounded by you know lawless or non-covenantal people so it's really good interesting point because it does and i agree with you and as our study in the book expands uh we're definitely going to see that genesis completely supports your idea of how genesis one is talking about the establishment of a governmental system too so i think that's a really good point and the last um, story the last oh. story uh um Cain probably had an accent or way of speaking and being that they knew that he was from Eden because when when they saw Peter, I guess at the fireplace or something like that, warming his hands, and they said, "You you you must be one of Jesus's disciples," and he said he didn't know him um, because of the way he spoke and his mannerisms. They knew he was with Jesus, you know. So probably they knew that uh, Cain was from Eden. Those that that mark that mark. You know, they probably knew he was from Eden. And they yeah, knew there's a lot of him. really cool, interesting probably. ideas of what that mark can be. And I think that could be, you know, you could write a whole book alone on the different ideas of what that mark can be. Even Steve, right? He brought, oh, what was that stupid mark? Right? Like, I'm totally yeah. right. He needs it's just to an know. idea. And there you go. Right? Absolutely. That's going to be, well, that's going to be Edward's book. He, he can write that <laughs> Edward's writing right the mark book. All right. Well, uh, we'll go now to you, Mr. Lee. Thank you. The second time for you on the way through this. Anything new jumping out? Anything reinforced? Is there any points that you just would like to reiterate where you sitting at at this point? Yeah, I think what comes to mind is you know like what Edward was saying. We have these surrounding kingdoms. Were they were they lawful kingdoms? Were they not lawful kingdoms? Those are kind of cool questions. But if we if we remember, and I didn't know if you wanted to go into it today, but if we just remember about the the river that flows into Eden and then flows out of Eden to the kingdoms, and when we you know what we learned that uh, you know the rivers is is the, the light and the righteousness that pours out of of the kingdom of god's chosen and so that's kind of a cool um thing and these these rivers are flowing into other kingdoms so it's like are these kingdoms that are receiving this water receiving this this righteousness from from this other kingdom that's feeding it uh you start looking in that light but i don't I just want to point that out but um i loved what you said about uh you know the importance of of you know being created in the likeness and of the image and likeness of the father that phrase is thrown around like crazy these days and to have that to really understand what likeness and image of the father means because these days it's thrown away like thrown around like well you know god made adam in his likeness he made jesus in his likeness and image we are uh, are in Jesus, so now um, that means that we're in His likeness and image. So that means, therefore, we we are just like God. We just have to understand that we are like God. And so, a lot of different religions have poured out of this, and belief systems have poured out of just that phrase. And so, I thought that was really important. Um, let's just see. To quickly jump in yeah. on that point, but if we understand it in the context we just did, uh-huh. what that really means is now I. I'm in line to inherit the kingdom of God because go. I'm the son of inheritance. Why? Because I'm an image and likeness. Yeah. So without being an image and likeness, I can't inherit. So yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with you. Extremely important point, and I'm glad you uh, emphasize that because it does get washed over very easily. Ooh, ooh, that's a big one, man. Um, I guess one more thing. Uh, one more thing needs to. So um, yeah, back to the the Cain building. And stuff. I like what you said, Dallas, about it, uh, building a city is a, a tremendous undertaking, like you said. Okay, so we have to look at Cain like like he's not this caveman who was kind of into farming and was just really good with grass and like bushes, but his brother was like gnarly as a as a like a farm guy with be with animals and stuff like that. And it's like, no, these guys were extremely educated. Cain was an extremely educated dude and he came from a world where he understood structure he understood city he understood buildings he understood what what it means to plan and to you know to execute and run a city or or anything like that so because people who, who who aren't educated don't just go out and build cities in the middle of nowhere that's so i thought that was really interesting to point out um, and, with and then that, you yeah. don't build cities when cities don't exist <laughs> that's that's true too it's really good interesting point so yeah really but i just wanted yeah right yeah you know, and then you know because that is a thing there there might be some of us who think that eden even, even if they're at the point where if, if we can get past the point that even eden is just a garden with trees and some fruit but it's actually a city 
So if we can understand that, we need to understand that first, that, that there's a city, a kingdom within Eden to be able to even get close to understanding that there might be something on the outside. So that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, and then the only last thing was just the pain of the childbirth thing. It, 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 that kind of relates to it too, right? To, to, the, the, to be able to produce a child, to have a son in order to, to pass a kingdom to, someone who's righteous to, to pass a, a kingdom to. I mean, does that have something to do with that pain of childbirth that, that Eve was, was promised? I would say it absolutely does. It's a little bit of a, a side adventure from understanding the origins of Adam. But there's no doubt because it does say in Genesis 3 that uh, your childbearing will become, you know, through pain, through the burdensome pain and labor pains, which is interesting because then they couldn't have a child of succession. Mm. It's there's some major pains before something came along to make it fruitful. So absolutely, I, there's a lot there, and I think it's awesome you pointed out. Side topic, Great. sorry. <laughs> no, it's going to become a main topic. So yeah. I'm just happy that you're tapping into these things. And I actually like to play off of what you were just talking about there as we finish up this chapter, because that's absolutely where I go into. So I'll just keep on going from here, unless anybody else has anything they want to pour in before we move on. Perfect. So we'll keep going. So it's uh, we'll continue where we left off. Genesis draws, uh, okay, Genesis 2 draws a picture for us of a kingdom that Adam is placed into. When Adam was created, it describes Adam's beginnings as being included into a working system. Eden was already made and functioning when Adam came along. A garden was made in the east of Eden to give space for Adam. Again, there is, a, there is the boundaries of Eden. The garden was made inside Eden to the east side. That means there is a north, a south, and a west. Also, a territory with defined borders. This is where Adam was placed. And as Genesis 1, 26-27 says, and man was given dominion, rule, and authority over the land, sea, and heaven. Genesis 2, 8, and the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. The garden was in the east of Eden. Adam was placed here. Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. We see order of the kingdom as water flows out of Eden to the garden, and then the water flows out from the garden to the nations. This is a picture used in Revelation 22 and also the completed kingdom of God. Revelation as the kingdom of God, where the water of life flows from the throne of God into the new Jerusalem, feeding the tree of life for the nations. When we read Revelation 21, uh, we're going to just 21 and 22. Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne. On either side of the river was the tree of life, and the tree and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Genesis 2. And a river flowed out of Eden, and the water flowed to the garden. And there it divided and became four water, four rivers. And what did those four rivers do? They watered the nations surrounding them. As we read in Genesis 2.11, the name of the first river that left Eden, well, the name of that first was Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. There's a whole land that this river flowed out of Eden to feed, where there is gold. So here we have Adam in Eden, in covenant, feeding water to this other nation. In you know, I'm not going to say in trade for gold, but obviously that was important. And the gold of that land is good. Uh, Bedlam and onyx stone are there. So there, there is trade. Like this is this is not just random language you would throw onto a page. So Genesis 2, 11, 12, and the gold was good. 13, the name of the second river was the Gion. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river was the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So these are absolute landmarks, nations, and territories. Adam becomes the right hand to the throne of Eden. The throne of Eden flowed its water to the garden, which in turn watered the nations, ruling and reigning where? 
at the right hand of God, at the right at the east side of Eden. As we come to look deeper into the world of Adam's beginnings, we see a different world emerging than what many people are used to. We also know that this is based on simple readings of the texts without the needing of changing words, phrases, or outside sources, nor does it need an interpretation. It does, however, require us to challenge our traditions. Next chapter, we're going to examine that the language that causes some confusion about Adam's beginnings by examining the word usage surrounding Genesis 2-7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust and from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So we're going to start into that next uh, session. I do see within this a bunch of stuff I'd like to add, change, manipulate. But I think it felt like a very successful reading, made some good points, addressed some uh, interesting things in a, that I think came across well. And before I shut this down with that review, going into Genesis uh, 2 there, talking about the lands which Eden was in, appears to be, we could say, we can't say definitively, but we can say appears to be in some kind of a covenant situation as the throne of God is feeding into Eden and Eden's feeding these other nations water. Now we can't get any more perfect imagery of you know the God feeding the the uh, the city Jerusalem like we see in Revelation and then, then Jerusalem feeding the nations around them the word what was the message the water well this water of life that was the message of life mm -hmm. so it was doctrine it was the law it was the covenant so we can take a look at all those themes and put this all together and I'm going to hand this off to you guys because you know honestly I don't think this is a hard topic and I think the point that I make there at the very end, the hard topic is challenging the tradition we were born and raised up with this. So I think it's you know pretty clear that the language, whether you agree or disagree with anyone's ideas of what's going on, I don't think I've interpreted anything. So I'm gonna leave it to you guys to tell them if you think now that this presentation's done, chapter of the book kind of idea, Am I forcing this? Am I not forcing this? Does it seem just simple and plain? Because we can, we're going to move on past this, but it does seem pretty clear and obvious. What do you guys think? I'm just going to open the floor. Feel free to jump in, however. Okay, I would like to say that, well, you made it so clear <laughs> and concise. It was wonderful. Uh, I was just wondering, does this apply? I appreciate because that. At the end, at the end, when you were talking about the the four rivers, you know, around the Eden, and then you know, watering those nations around them, um, being that it was the center of, they were like the center of merchants of merchants of merchandise or whatever, you know, having the water and being in the center. Does that apply to like almost like when Solomon Solomon was living in an area, in the center of all of the merchants that were around him and his land was had the uh the resources you know for all of the merchants around him you know before he had you know messed everything up you know with all of the wives and everything like that or however but you well, know he that had... pattern is absolutely duplicated in revelation we see that when jerusalem yes. was established they surrounded by it where I, mm -hmm. I think you can absolutely take that pattern and apply it to eden being surrounded absolutely by the nations in that same mm -hmm. idea yeah i'm right there with you that's a great point edward i've never actually considered that that's nice <laughs> I <love> that. thank you <laughs> what about steve leith is there anything else that you'd like to add to this uh i'm gonna piggyback off what leif said earlier is because um you know what's what's jumping out at me is what he said with the likeness is this is exactly what the world is doing this is why i think it's important this podcast and or this video or whatever we're doing be to, to understand what these words mean and the connection because people are twisting it and you know you take likeness and you think it's no big deal whatever but these people go off into la la land and they twist it and make it into you know i'm a god and i'm just like god and all this stuff and you know this is this false light type stuff that like all these people are and it's throughout the bible they just take story from here story from there they twist the word twist and so i think it's important that we are talking about this and i hope it, you know more people start talking because this is this twisting of stuff is what's causing all this chaos in the world 
That's, that's a great comment. I think uh, if we weren't 59 minutes into the podcast, that could be a great conversation starter. That's really interesting stuff there. And I, I agree that that unfortunately is rampant in those who call themselves studiers of God is uh, people tend to seem to want to take liberties or maybe just not challenge the traditions and run with it and it becomes something else. So I agree with you, Steve. And, you know, hopefully this mundane, boring, sit down, take the words out of the and you look at the dictionary. You know, it is boring, but it's how we're going to come to it. So I appreciate your sentiment in there because I think that's how we're going to have to do it slowly. Just crawl, you know, claw our boring minds back into that magical world of, you know, yeah, again, can of worms. I appreciate that topic, Steve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, could, could you tell me yes or no with this? Because I got this from Tim Martin with, with likeness. I think it's the second or third uh, commandment where it says, don't use the Lord's name in vain. And he said to use the Lord's name in vain is not to represent Christ in your walk in life. To whereas because uh, to claim that you're a Christian, and not walk according to the ways of of the Lord Christ, being in his image in that regard, you know, you're using his name in vain because the world is looking at us to see God. And if we're not walking in his ways, you know, I I think I'm phrasing it to the best of my ability. No, you're making a really good point because it piggybacks perfectly off of uh, Steve's point. And it's when it comes down to it, you know, we have to go through it all. And what, how, what do we make sense out of it all? And so, you know, the image, like, you know, taking the name in vain, where do we start taking image and likeness, for example, because of the topic? And when does that become in vain, right? When does that, mm-hmm. well, let's take into context the Ten Commandments. What was the, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain? Well, that has to do with speaking falsely of the things of God. So that would be literally going out of your way to teach against the law. Mm-hmm. The law said, thou shall not kill. And someone said, well, you can kill in this circumstance. That would be taking the Lord's name in vain. You'd be saying, God told me to do it this way. You're overriding. So we're, t- and there's a lot of, and again, we live in a Greek society where every word means one thing. Uh, that's not the way, and as this study progresses, as we learned with Rashid, and we're going to be moving into that, one word does not just mean one thing. So mm-hmm. and that's the problem with simply saying that this is what it means. To take the Lord's name in vain, in generic speaking, would simply to be to misrepresent God. Amen. That would be as generic as I could say it. Now, as far as how do we, you know, today then to infer between people, are they going too far with this and that? How do we determine? What if someone's caught up in a likeness issue or an image issue and is really messing with them? How do we determine who and what to deal with them as? That's simple. What's the one thing we should all be walking in anyway? They will know you are my disciples by the fact that you love one another. So that's what we always default to. Not because we're trying to get access to anything. Not because Jesus said it. Not because God will love us more. But because it's what makes life work. And that's all. That's all it is. It's just the truth of existing. So that's what I can say to a lot of those dilemmas. It doesn't mean it's going to fix them. But it might help us get more into a sanctuary away from it. (laughs) Amen. Amen. (laughs) Right on. Uh, Leith, did you have any final thoughts here before we start shutting down? Yeah, just real quick. um, I I think that you're right that you haven't really, um, like you said, you you haven't really taught any doctrine today in this this, um, little podcast. You have... um, I think what you've done is you we've laid out some verses and some sections that kind of talk about one or two particular things and we've slowed down and just looked at them. And I think, you know, when we slow down a little bit <laughs> and like you said, deconstruct, decommission on presupposition and and kick that to the curb a little bit, slow down and read it for what it is. There's no need to build doctrine. We just what we're doing is defining what these words are, and so I'm seeing that um, with um, Edwards' um, question about you know using the Lord's name in vain. Imagine, yeah, proclaiming something, saying that God said something, and proclaiming it as true, even though it's not. 
that's a terrible thing to be doing. And I think that if we can look at scripture as, you know, if, if scripture is truly inspired and that the story and that the people within it are inspired and this story is of God and of his people, we got to be really careful about if we're going to take these words and proclaim them as something that it's not saying. So we wouldn't want to use the word of God in vain either. That's all I got to say about it. That's awesome. It's a great summary to that uh, that idea. And I think it's, you know, it's pertinent. Here we are doing a study on something, you know, that it breaks down to individual words and just their definitions and their word usage in the Bible. And that's why we're in this position is because, unfortunately, uh, we've lost and maybe we've never had as a body of humans trying to understand this situation in history. But, you know, it's never too late to start. And if not, you know, it's information that has become very beneficial and I'm glad it's benefiting you guys. And I think it's it's really fun because like and I'm glad that you pointed it out. We haven't even gotten into the doctrine stuff yet where we can turn this into whatever we want. We're still fundamentally just trying to understand what the words say. So before we get into all that external stuff, which, you know, on, you know, honestly, I don't really like anyway. I do like guessing at things and I do have my own opinions. But the one thing I can say is when we come to look at these traditions and this this chapter specifically really, 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 in my opinion, highlights the need for returning to proper study. And that is if I see Adam as anything else, like if I take the standard generic look that Adam was the first human and I put it up to what we just read and if what we just read without input of people saying that this is what it means we're just reading what it says and trying to understand the simple literature those two people will see the world completely different like completely different the problem with that is sure go ahead everyone's allowed to see everything different no go and live the way you want to the problem is i now have to live in the world with that person and when that person leads a country to war over a piece of land and they're bombing people to death because of it now it's my problem now it's the world's problem now humans have to understand so hopefully what we're doing uh, in these talks and uh, what my book can do not only is it about bible it's about this end kind of interesting theme that just appeared here it's about helping people get control back in their life with the bible knowledge understanding and i'm glad it's been impacting uh, steve leith and i'm very excited to go forward how it ends up uh, impacting edward because uh, I do think as we challenge these traditions, and I'm never going to get away from that because at the end of the day, that's all we're doing here. We're not doing anything fancy pants. We're just challenging the traditions we were once given. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, this episode, and I hope this chapter uh, continued off of the last one and keeps you interested in where this book is going. I look forward to the next episode, and I know these guys do as well. So thanks for listening. I don't want to drag this on. Enjoy the podcast and wherever this goes, I'm glad you are so far. Episode two, we'll see where you guys are all on episode 18. So uh, appreciate the time. I'll see you guys again next time, uh, wherever you are. I hope this finds you well. God bless you.